Well, if you have your copy of uh, God's Word, open up to John's Gospel, chapter 12. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, looking at verses 12 uh, through about 26. And uh, man, you guys just brought it this morning, so much so that Jeffrey lost all of his hair uh, last week. Um, just, uh, just killing it. Now, he, Jeffrey and I both are losing our hair as we get older, and so we're coming to grips with that, and it's getting shorter, and we're just embracing it all. Um, listen, let me just say this. As you're finding your place in John's uh, gospel, just I know Matt will probably talk about this towards the end, uh, but this Tuesday, um, we're going to have our second round and go-to of Night of Worship. And so if you enjoyed what just happened, uh, just imagine like an hour and 15 minutes or so, hour and a half uh, of that, just gathered around. It's it is for uh, anybody who appreciates sort of this genre. It's, it's, uh, it's heavily driven by our college students and young adults, but anybody is welcome. We have childcare. Uh, we want y'all to be there, sort of circle in the round. It's in the great room. And uh, last time was just an amazing time uh, with the Lord. And so I'd encourage you uh, to come be with us this Tuesday uh, evening. Well, uh, we, um, we are transitioning um, out of our church series on Ecclesia. And can I just say, um, to see all these people back after I preached on church discipline last week is a huge relief for me. Uh, and even like the Lord's Supper prior to that, which was pretty heavy. Uh, and so going like two hard weeks, going hard in the paint, and then sort of coming out of it now and uh, just sort of taking a breath and just sort of dwelling in the presence of the Lord uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture found in John's Gospel, chapter 12. I'm gonna start reading verse 12 for us and we'll just jump right in. So the text says this, so the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. A couple things are happening. Jesus is preparing to enter into pain and torment and death. His time on, on this earth in that context or the way he's been serving was, was coming to an end. And so this is what's described by scholars as this triumphal entry into Jerusalem where Jesus is basically embracing the idea that I'm about to suffer and that I'm about to die. And so he comes to this place where he's entering into, but it follows previously from that in John chapter 11 where Jesus performs perhaps one of his most remarkable miracles where he brings Lazarus back from the dead. You remember that story? And so word begins to spread that, that Jesus is resurrecting people from the dead. And all of a sudden, he starts to draw a crowd, and people who are curious about him, want to know about him, and understand some things about him, they begin to start to follow him. Now, to make matters worse, as he enters into Jerusalem, he enters during a time of year known as the Passover. Josephus, a, a Roman Jewish historian, estimates that the time that Jesus walks into Jerusalem, there were approximately 2.7 million some odd people that were there. And they were gathered around to celebrate Passover and remembering when God spared his children, delivered them out of the bondage and the slavery of, of Egypt and as this time of remembrance. And so what they begin to do is they begin to adorn him in verse 13. And it says that the people gathered around and they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. Now, what's interesting about palm trees is, is what happens in the, what we would just call the juxtaposition between the palm trees and then Jesus eventually getting on a donkey. 
Because two things are happening here that are deeply at odds with one another because Jesus is trying to inform and he's trying to teach the people. And so typically, if you were going to greet a conquering, triumphant king who has delivered you from the battlefield and from oppression and bondage, you would take out palm trees. As they begin to walk, you would wave the palm trees as sort of a sign and, and symbolic of the gesture that, hey, listen, we recognize that you are our savior. You are our deliverer. There was this guy named Simon who about 150 years prior to this, Jerusalem was occupied by the Syrian army and Simon sort of raised up an army and they defeated the Syrians on their home turf and kicked them out of Jerusalem. And then when Simon did that, he was adorned as a military conquering king who had defeated the enemies. And so the palm trees came out and they began to address Simon in this way. And so here Jesus is and he's coming up to Jerusalem and the people begin to, to get out the palm trees and they want to adorn him as this conquering emperor. But they began to, to miss the point altogether. As they take the palm trees out, they begin to cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. And this is a direct quotation in the text from Psalms 118. And, and it's something that every good God-fearing Jew would have known because they would have known this and, and even sung it in some instances where just part of it reads this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 25 and 26. And so they begin to wave the palm trees. They begin to quote Psalm 118, save us, deliver us. But then notice what happens in verse 14. Jesus, he finds a donkey and he sits on it. Just as it is written out of Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming and he's sitting on a donkey's colt. Now the juxtaposition that exists here within the text is you've got the people who are adorning Jesus with these palm trees, you, you are a political and a military conqueror, and Jesus just sort of plays along with it for a little bit. And he allows the gesture of goodwill to sort of happen until he finds a donkey and he mounts the donkey. Now, if Jesus was in agreement with the palm trees and saying, hey, listen, you guys have figured me out, you got it, he would have got on a horse and rode in Jerusalem on the horse, but instead he went and picked a donkey. A donkey was not something that you got on as a conquering king. In other words, what Jesus was doing was this symbolic uh, treatment of, of the text and saying, listen, I, I am a king, the king of the universe, but I'm not the king that's going to deliver you in this, in this moment with, uh, from the oppression and the bondage that exists. No, rather, my mission is I've come to seek and save the lost and to deal with sin, death, and evil first. And then someday I'm going to return in judgment and I'm going to deal with all the oppression and all the injustices that exist out there. But that's someday, that's not yet. And so he presents himself in this way. Luke's gospel tells us that when he begins to get on the donkey and he approaches the city, Luke 19, 42 says that as Jesus looked on the city, he began to weep. He began to weep over, over the sin and, and how far people had fallen. And it says in Luke's Gospel 19, he says, What that you even had known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now these things are hidden from your eyes. In other words, Jesus' response 
fixing to enter into a posture of, sin, of suffering and, and to, to free us from our sin, his response is not condemnation on the city of Jerusalem, but rather tears. Because he understands that, that they, they don't know and they don't fully understand what exactly is happening. And so it's not a posture of condemn, condemnation, but it's rather this posture of godly sorrow for people that do not know what it means to have a relationship with the one true God. And so he weeps for them and he cries for them. Then the text continues along and he says in verse 16, he says, listen, the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had done to him, the crowd, verse 17, that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this miraculous thing. So the Pharisees began to say to one another in verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Sort of an interesting detail that exists in the text. These Greeks were, were known as the Hellenists. These were Greek-speaking Jewish descendants, Jewish people that spoke Greek. The Hellenists were predominantly uh, the cultural force that existed within Jesus' New Testament times. There were Hebrew-speaking Jews and there were Greek-speaking Jews. The Greek-speaking Jews had a profound impact on, on their cities and on their culture. And so he says that all of a sudden they went up to worship at the feast and there were some Greeks in verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and he asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Could that be one of the most important sentences that exemplify a posture of what God's people should want on a day-in, day-out basis? What I mean by that is, is that when we gather on a Sunday morning, whether it be small groups or in this room, or we, we go, shouldn't that just, as simple as it is, shouldn't that just be our prayer, sir? We just, we wanna see Jesus. Beyond personalities, beyond worship styles, beyond lights, beyond buildings, beyond locations, beyond ideologies, beyond cultural issues, like the goal for the Christian should be exemplified in this little statement, sir, but we just want to see Jesus. I believe wholeheartedly when churches are walking in obedience and faithfulness and we make much of Jesus in our, in our lives and with our postures and in the rhythms in which we exist week in and week out. Listen, I can guarantee you that just like these Greeks showed up and they, they go and they tell the disciples, we, we just want to see Jesus, things happen. You know, this past year has been a, a pretty, pretty incredible year for the life of our church. We, we just voted on our budget. Um, and, and one of the things that you may or may not know if you get our newsletter, if not, you, you probably don't know this, but even in the midst of all that we've experienced this past year, we, we have met budget. Uh, we've gone, you've gone above and beyond almost what, what we require receipts wise. Uh, just been an incredible year and you guys have been extremely faithful in, in your giving. Now, a couple months ago, I talked about giving and I got an email from, 
an individual that said we should never talk about money in the church. And I'm just gonna say this to you because that person's not in this room. That is absolutely ridiculous. Giving is a spiritual indicator of often where our hearts are. And how and where we spend our money often will reflect the, the, I, the things in our heart that we sort of gravitate towards. And, and the only reason I mention this to you is because you have been incredibly gracious and generous over this past year to where God has just been really good and really faithful in the midst of this. But here's also something that's pretty remarkable. Since January 1st, 2020, our church this year has added close to 96 new members into our church. That's not attenders. That's not fans of Travis. That's not, hey, we're coming and we're sitting and, and we like this and we like that. No, that is people who have united with us in our faith family and said, listen, it's not enough for me to just come and to sit in the pew, but I wanna be on the team and I wanna suit out and I wanna get in my circle and I wanna serve and I wanna do things for the kingdom of God and for the Lord. 96, did you know that over the past two years, two years, that over half, of all Protestant evangelical churches as a whole have not assimilated one member into their church. I don't say that out of a posture of condemnation. I just simply say, look what our God is doing. Sir, we just want to see Jesus. Beyond marketing ploys and strategies and branding and this and that, like we as a people, we just wanna make much of him, don't we? Like that's our goal and, and that's our aim and that's what we strive for and that's what we long for. And so they come and, and then Jesus, Philip, verse 22, Philip went and he tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. It's one of my favorite descriptions of, of Jesus simply referring to the Son of Man because it's a reference back to the book of Daniel, one of the weirdest, strangest, most complex books uh, aside from Revelation that exists within Scripture. But this is a scene, an imagery that exists within Daniel 7 where it says this, And there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and the nations and the languages should serve him. So all of history, all of time, every event is moving itself down this pathway where the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days is given dominion and glory and kingdom so that every tribe, nation, and tongue can bow down before him and worship and honor him and sing to him and, and understand him. But notice at the end of verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man. And notice what it says the time is. The time is for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a peculiar statement knowing what's about to happen in Jesus' life. He's walking into Jerusalem knowing full well that he's about to be betrayed and forsaken and abandoned by his closest friends. He knows full well that, that he's about to go all the way to the, to the nth degree, all the way to the cross, to die and be put to death for something that he didn't even do, but rather you and I did. And so it's why he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified for this particular reason. Don't miss this. If you don't listen to anything else I say today, just remember this. The death of Jesus, the death of Jesus was the supreme 
manifestation of his glory. In his death, is the way in which God deemed by putting to death his son that he would manifest and he would receive all the glory that was owed to him. His death is his glory. Not an aspect of it, not a part of it, but Jesus' death is his glory and his death also ought to be ours. Spurgeon said he was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary, a glory that has never been equaled before. In every which way. Now Jesus goes on and begins to say some pretty peculiar and some hard things, sort of getting ready for his last few messages as he addresses his people. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 24, 25, and 26. There's really four things that Jesus tells the people that, that are sort of, they're, they're paradoxical in nature. Like he says one thing to get to another place, but it's almost the opposite. Notice in verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the first hard truth in the text is just a really simple one that we're familiar with, but it's to live, we have to first die. So if I'm gonna live my fullest life and, and, and my fullest potential, like if I'm gonna, gonna be the person that God really wants me to be, that I have to recognize that freedom comes first and foremost when I put to, to death my, my own flesh and myself and I, and I allow those things to be put to death and to die so that I know that the promise is I'm gonna have something greater to live for. So if I'm gonna live, and if I'm going to abide and walk and I'm going to flourish like God wants me to, that I have to be putting sin to death and I have to put my, my, my flesh to death. To live, we must first die. But look at verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, what he's saying is we're not called to live for this world. I'm just not. I want to illustrate something to you. Um, Haley, can, I, can you come up here for a second? So I didn't tell her I was going to ask her to be my helper, but I typically don't tell her just so I can see her face whenever I call her name. It's like sheer panic, you know, that exists. So I, you've probably seen something similar to this before. This illustration has been around for a long time. I'm going to have you take this long end of the rope for me. Um, come stand by me. You're really pretty, so I want everybody to see you. Um, me with you, I guess. So, so on the end of this rope, I've got this blue tape taped off and what this blue tape represents, this is your life. At some point you were brought into existence and you were born and you grew up and, and you went through adolescence and all the teenage years and, and young adults, you, you, maybe you got married, you had, you had kids, you, you finally bought your, the house you always wanted, the car, uh, you, you've got your, your perfect life and it exists on this spectrum of this blue tape. But after that blue tape ends and after you take your, your last breath is what we would call within the Bible, it's eternity. So you exist for this brief moment in time. A vapor almost seems inconsequential. And here's the reality of the gospel is how you live here is gonna impact how you spend all of eternity. Hey, I'm just gonna have you just kind of walk as far as you can go until the rope goes or you fall down and we get tangled up or something like that. And so the idea is this. 
how you live here impacts, that's good, you're great right there, impacts how you're going to spend eternity. Now here's the problem with, with many Christians. We spend so much of our time living for right here and we never even consider the ramifications down the road. The world certainly doesn't. They, they are all about certain things that exist for this vapor of a moment and how they can maximize this, this brief moment in, in time and, and be comfortable and, and, and experience all of the things that they want to experience and buy all the things they want to buy and, and go to all the places they want to go. And there's nothing wrong with those things, only if our sole aim and ambition is simply about making this little blue speck in the spectrum of eternity our main focus and our main goal. And Jesus says this, listen, the reality is you are not called to live for this moment, but rather you are called to live for all of these other moments down the road. Thank you, sweetheart. And I think where churches struggle, I think where Christians struggle, conventions struggle, is that we are so focused on that little blue line. And the thing is, According to Jesus, the more uncomfortable I get within this life, the more comfort I'm going to receive in the next one. The more I give up in, in this life and sacrifice in this life on that little spectrum, the more that I will receive in eternity as a reward. We get it backwards, friends. And so it's why Jesus says, whoever loses his life, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What we lay down here today and here in these next few months and moments and, and even the, in our years that I believe wholeheartedly we will receive as a return when we enter into heaven in eternity. But Jesus isn't done. He keeps going. He says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. I needed to hear this this week. And as I was talking with Haley about this yesterday, but we are, we are called to follow him in the hard places. Really simple truth, but like it's a truth. Like we are called to follow God in the hard things. And here's what I wanna to say to encourage some of you this morning. Friend, brother and sister in Christ, you can do hard things. In Christ, you can do hard things. You can handle difficult situations. You can handle grief, you can handle heartache, you can handle conflict at home and in the workplace. You can, you can handle those things. You can do hard things when we're in Christ and we're following him, when we're called to follow him into the hard places. Why? He wouldn't give us this promise if he didn't believe that in him and because of his spirit, we're capable of actually being able to do it. He doesn't say you're gonna, you're gonna utterly fail in the difficult situations and, and good luck to you as you navigate those things. No, he says, listen, I promise you my, my presence through my spirit and, and therefore because my spirit is there and I am there with you, you can do the hard things. He ends and he says, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. I love 
that ending as, as Jesus finishes up. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Listen how, how crazy this is. What this means is that my, my reward for obedience and faithfulness is that God, as I seek to honor God and honor the Father, God is gonna flip around and he's gonna honor me. Like you walk with me and do hard things in my spirit and the reward is God brings honor to his, his people. He esteems them and he, and he lifts them up according to this word and according to this promise. The way this looks as we back out of 24, 25, and 26 as a recap, just don't miss uh, this back and forth that, that Jesus is doing for us in a masterful rhetorical way. But what it looks like is this, when we die, we bear much fruit. When we hate our lives in this world, we will keep our lives for eternity. When we follow Jesus all the way to the road of Calvary, we will join Jesus where he is. When we become servants, the Father brings us honor. Friend, let me tell you something this morning. In Christ, you have every single thing that you need. That's the promise. You have all that you need in Christ to do the difficult things and to serve him and go to the hard places. I want to show you a picture up on the screen. Matthew, you can pull that up for me. So that's my little buddy, Duke. And uh, Duke's my, my five-year-old. Uh, and man, I'll tell you something. All my kids are awesome. Duke's awesome. Last week, about a week and a half ago, uh, we were outside. And first of all, uh, this, earlier that day, it was like, I don't know, three or four in the afternoon. I was like, bro, can you go put some clothes on, please? Like, can you get dressed? And so he runs upstairs and he goes. And uh, one of the reasons why I love Duke is he'll go and grab cut off muscle shirts, right? And he's walking around, you know, and he, and he doesn't know that he's little. I mean, he's like, like this tall. I don't know. Like he's just little. And uh, he puts on this cut off t-shirt. So we're outside and, and I, I walk out there with him. And it's just he and I at this moment, I think Lucy was coming or she was going to get on the trampoline. And, and I was like, man, Duke, bro, like you're getting ripped, man. Like you're getting big. You've been, you got some gains coming. Like it looks like, Duke, your muscles are growing. And as soon as I said, your muscles are growing, because he didn't know what gains was, right? He's too little to know that. He just kind of looked at me, I was like, your muscles, your muscles are growing. And he goes, dad, and he flexes like this. And he goes, it's because they are. <laughs> and I was like, can you just hold on just a second? I need to get my phone out so I can remember this. Like, like boom. See, the funny thing is when I, when I look at that and I see his muscles, I'm like, well, I mean, like, he, he, he's got some muscles, but like, I don't know that they're growing yet. We're praying that he grows quickly. But the question that, that, the reason I tell you that is to ask this question, why do you think he believes that? Do you think it's because he sees his muscles and he knows and he can watch them? No, I don't think that's the case at all. The reason why Duke believes that his muscles are getting bigger is because his dad regularly tells him over and over again, bro, you are getting so big. Look at your muscles. Look at your gains. Look at how big you're getting. And I tell him that over and over and over and over again to the point to now where he's just like, yeah, man, check it out. He believes it. And the reason why he believes it, because he's in fellowship with me, because I'm his father and he knows the voice of his dad. And he believes what his dad tells him. When he makes promises to him, he keeps them and he never forsakes him. And, and, he, and he tells him things to affirm him and to build him up as we seek to do with all of our kids regularly. So much so that even though his, he doesn't really have any gains, he believes every word that I say and he believes it in his, in his head. Because I'm trying to build confidence in him. 
and to affirm him and to see in him, even as a, as a five-year-old who, who doesn't know Christ the way mom and dad do, but try to affirm in him and our kids when we see the spirit of God working in their life. And, and look how we see God doing these things in your life and, and the spirit of God guiding you. The reality is he, he understands his identity. And the reason why I tied this back into identity is because in order for Jesus to receive the glory at the foot of the cross, he had to be sure and he knew without a doubt, without hesitation, that what he needed to do was necessary and that in order for the world to be saved, Christ understood his mission, his identity, and his purpose. And so he went and did hard things. Friend, I don't know what you're going through today, but I just want to tell you that in Christ and in his spirit, you can do hard things too. In Christ and because of his, his spirit and the, and the glory that we receive at the foot of the cross of Jesus, in his death, we receive that glory as well. But here's the deal, that the gospel doesn't just stop when Jesus dies. The gospel uh, continues along, infinitely moving down the road, certainly so when he's resurrected and he proves all the things that he's been saying. He validates everything. He defeats sin, death, and evil once and for all. He is who he says he is, and he knows who he says he knows. If you're here today or watching online and you don't know this Jesus, then I implore you to receive him by faith, to trust him. The gospel is not about you inviting Jesus into your life and, and then allowing God to just be a part. No, the gospel is about God inviting you into his story. And he's saying, you come be a part of my team and you come serve for, for my redemptive purposes. And I'm gonna send you and I'm gonna put you on mission and I'm gonna give you purpose and I'm gonna show you my, my plan as you, as you walk faithfully with me. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He forgives us of our sins. We, we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and, and call upon his name to save us. But if you've already done that this morning, church, I think maybe some of you this morning would be guilty of, just like me this week, of living for this. You're here. And what I'm asking you to do this morning is to stop thinking about this and start thinking about this. And think about your church and your city in your campuses, your schools, your coworkers, think about them in light of eternity and not right now. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we pray, as we seek you, as we just seek to be faithful this morning. Would you help us walk in that truth? We pray now that as we sing in response that you would just inhabit our praises. You're good to us, God, always. And so we ask for help in this time. We pray in Christ's name, amen.